1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I will be speaking with Nathaniel Wood. He is the author of Becoming Metropolitan: Urban Selfwood in the Making of Modern Krakow, published by Northern Illinois Press. It's a notable book because, contrary to the dominant scholarly trends, he focuses on urban and metropolitan European identity rather than nationalism and the shaping of national identity. Nathan Wood, welcome to New Books in East European Studies. How are you doing? Terrific. Thank you, Hugo. It's
0: great to be talking with you.
1: Well, it is great to be talking with you about your book. And I guess, uh, you know, I like to always start by asking people about how they got to the point of writing this uh, their book. So could you start there, please?
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so... I, I guess I'm of the generation that was still, uh, you know, very much part of, aware of the Cold War and, and then, of course, the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. I was in my last year of high school. I had a wonderful high, uh, high school teacher who essentially in the spring of 1990 used all the press clippings he could find from the fall of 89 to put together a course. And I, I took that with great interest. And then I served a two-year mission for my church in Poland. So I lived there from 1991 to 93, went back in 1995, and this was the first time uh, I set foot in Krakow, and uh, was just really taken with view of the city, as I'm sure most people who, who go to Krakow are. But I was very interested in the turn of the century, uh, and particularly Stanisław Wyspiański, the artist and playwright. Uh, and, and so when I got to graduate school, at Indiana University in 96 I was very interested to see that there really weren't any books about in English about turn-of-the-century Krakow. I read uh, Karl Shorsky's Famous Siecle Vienna with interest and then uh, several books about Budapest at the the turn-of-the-century and was just really surprised that there wasn't an equivalent English language book. Uh, So I wrote you know a little paper about that for some graduate course and the more I thought about it, this is also a time when, uh, as you know, everyone in grad school, and in certainly in Central European, Eastern European history, was, but I think generally was steeped in nationalism theory. I, I spent the first couple of years in grad school just uh, reading everything I could, I could about nationalism and national self-identification and national identity. Uh, but then, but I thought, you know, I I don't want to replicate. Shorsky story, even though Krakow has its, Polska, its Young Poland movement, even though there is uh, highbrow culture, I, I want to try and get at a middlebrow perspective. And I thought, well, what sorts of sources would would help me get a sort of more, not necessarily working class, but, but urban, urban perspectives on the city? I think I had just read uh, uh, Beth Holmgren's book, uh, about the literature and the press in Poland at this period. I was doing a seminar paper on Tigotnik ilustrowane, which is out of Warsaw, uh, sort of a popular literary form. And so when I went to Krakow in 1999 on a pre dissertation travel grant, and I found these wonderful popular illustrated newspapers, I just, I just realized that, that this was a rich source and it was ready to be tapped. So that's, I think, the basic storyline, at least from the 1990s, of, of the, the origins of the book. A love of the turn-of-the-century Krakow when I was there, an interest in writing a history of that period, but then a decision that I didn't want to tell the, the same story as Shorsky, and I wanted to try and come at it from from a different perspective, a popular um, middle-brow sort of perspective. And, and once I started reading these these great stories of a woman leaps from window, faithful dog follows, and um, hilarious stuff like that, but also fears about modern urban life. I, re- I realized that uh, the national story wasn't as prominent as as I think uh, one would think, and, and that's how I got this idea to stress. Uh, this is, of course, straight from all the nationalism theory, uh, Benedict Anderson's sort of print capitalism, but, but, but interestingly, I thought that the, the first-person plural, the, the, the community identity that was most clearly being formulated was actually an urban one, a, a metropolitan one, and not and not as much a, a national one. And I, I, I realized that this could be a, a very interesting argument in light of all the other scholarship about nationalism.
1: Well, I, th- I think it was a very brave leap. Uh, having lived through that time myself and uh, really and gone down the nationalism path. I mean, it, it must have been very hard to say you're not going to talk about it explicitly. Uh, did you run into any people along the way who said, you you know, you've got to say more about nationalism as you did your original research?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I, I still remember, um, actually, in my dissertation reading group, Several of my colleagues saying, "Okay, just because you uh, are stressing a new way of looking at things doesn't mean you can ignore nationalism self-identification. and self-identification." And to be sure, the national self-identification is is crucially important in this period and in this place. Uh, and it would be disingenuous uh, of me to say that it's not. Present in sources. It's just that it 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 wasn't the major storyline, particularly particularly doing research the way I chose to do, which which was to sit at the library and read these newspapers more or less in chronological order. And it was a real time-consuming uh, technique, but it was delightful to follow uh, essentially what was happening exactly a century before, as I. As I s- sat there in in Krakow in two thousand one, and 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 read through these uh, these popular illustrated newspapers, and particularly if, as I as I chose to do, if I focused on the Daily Chronicle section of the newspaper, which in Nowiny Dlaczystki was called "So w Mięsie" or uh, what's the word in town? What what does one hear in town? Uh, there was very little emphasis on nationalism and much more on either local or, as I came to find, also what we might call inter-urban uh, issues, you know, what's going on in, in, um, in other big cities and, and sort of what con- sorts of conclusions could readers draw from that.
1: Well, yeah, it sounds like a lovely way to spend your research time. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I was, you know, my own experience was actually, it was sifting through everything to go to the things that were talking about nationalism. Uh, it it is a pleasure to sit down and read these other articles that came along. Uh, and why don't you, uh, okay. You know, the book is called Becoming Metropolitan, uh, the urban selfhood and the making of modern Krakow. Once you lay the groundwork for, um, Tell us a bit about Krakow. Why did you, you know, had you already decided to start, you know, at this time because of the newspapers or, uh, you know, uh, what about, you know, Krakow has an interesting history as it is in the 19th century, over the long 19th century as it is. Uh, Could you elaborate that and also position it a bit in the broader Galician context?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, that's 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 a great question. Uh, so as I acknowledged in my sort of biographical background, I did come to Krakow because of my interest in the city itself. But as I, as I started to articulate this issue of becoming metropolitan, I realized that Krakow is a great place to do this because it's not a prototypical big city. So in the Polish case, one should go to, uh, Warsaw or, or Łódź, which was the, the, Polish Manchester, where there was all sorts of textile manufacturing uh, if one wanted to get a <clears throat> you know sort of stereotypical um, industrial city uh, a, a big city well go to Warsaw, which is eight hundred thousand people at the, at the turn of the century and almost a million by the great War uh, in Galicia itself, of course, Warsaw's not even the capital city Lemberg uh, Vif is, is uh, you know, shares that, distinct, has that distinction. Uh, so the fact that, that I was finding so much uh, folk interest in modern urban identity, uh, urbanization, and what they often would call Europeanization or European civilization, um, struck me as really telling, because I, I felt like, okay, if I can show that in this city, Krakow, which uh, is today even sort of revered for its role as a center of Polish national identity, uh, a place where the past is is so dominant. Uh, unlike other uh, Central European cities, Polish cities, uh, Krakow wasn't destroyed during the war. Uh, it still ha- has its architecture from its real heyday, which, of course, is the Late medieval and, and sort of early Renaissance period, where when it was the capital city of the uh, Polish Kingdom and then later the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, so Krakow has a history of being a city that looks to its past, not to its future. That sort of reveres its past, and I thought, wow, what if I can show that even in a place like this, uh, modern global culture uh, has a huge influence. Well, maybe, maybe then it's, it's a, it's a good argument. It's a, it's worth noting. Uh, 19th century Krakow has, you know, the experience of the partitions of Poland in the late 18th century, then, uh, is the free city of Krakow as a result of the, um, Congress of Vienna. For a while there, it's, it's, uh, this sort of the lone, Semi-free pocket of what's left of this huge polish lithuanian Commonwealth. And then, 1846, there are the the, the uprisings there that take place, uh, where um, there are both nationalist uprisings, but also peasants who are slaughtering their landlords in the countryside in the Austrians. Uh, in many respects, you could say capitalize on that. And so, for the middle of the 19th century, uh, Krakow is is now in... Being taken over by by the Austrians, it's at its nadir. Um, population is down. There's a huge fire, um, and then 1866, uh, throughout Galicia, they, uh, the well, and I think the Austrian monarchy generally, there are these new new laws that that give cities a greater uh, greater autonomy, and so. Uh, Krakow is now governed by local Krakowians, uh, Polish language uh, schooling, uh, government is much more prominent, and in the Polish historiography, this becomes sort of a little heyday where where Krakow can be the center of Polish national identity. Uh, Patrice Dobrowski has written about uh, this period in her book Commemorations and the Shaping of Modern Poland, where she talks about how there are all these uh, commemorative Events to sort of bring the nation together, both, um, on multiple class levels, sort of transcending uh, the old definition of Polish nationalism, which of course was that of the nobility, and creating a new modern, modern nation through commemorating, say, Mickiewicz, uh, the bard, poet, or, um, the finding of relics of bones of old Polish kings, or...
1: Um, if I may the, interrupt yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always, one of the things I like about Dobrowski's book is that she actually uh, chips away at the notion that Krakow is obsessed about their history because they don't even know about these bones. Uh, the discovery and the, oh, we should care about the Wahel is sort of a realization of the late uh, of, of the discovery of the bones in 1869, if I recall the year correctly. Uh, <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, this is the invention of tradition. It's it's, uh, it's going on everywhere in this period. And what's great about Patrice's book is that, that she, on the one hand, she's reifying the narrative, but on the other hand, she is very, very sophisticated about how she um, shows how messy it was. And I think that's what you're pointing to. You know, people didn't really know what to do with this, and know what kind of past they wanted to commemorate. So, in effect, they were creating that past with these uh, with these commemorations. And some of the people you would think would be supportive were 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 actually kind of wary. The the Steinshicks, the the this conservative uh, loyal faction loyal to the Habsburgs, they were really nervous about this uh, commemorative impulse. And so, it's great to see in Patrice book she does a what I've called in my in my reviews of it this sort of uh, Geertzian, uh a la Clifford Geertz, um thick description, where she really shows how messy it was, how the peasants are jockeying for uh their uh, aims during the commemorations, how the liberal democrats, how the nationalists, how the conservatives all sort of try to make the most out of uh, the commemorative impulse. So it's not so straightforward as uh, as this national or nationalist history would, would have us think.
1: Speaking of invention of tradition uh, and Krakow in particular, um, anyone who goes to Krakow or, and really has spent time listening to Polish radio is familiar with the Hegnol, which is this beautiful horn piece that's played um, on the hour
0: yeah, uh, yes.
1: from the top of of the The Mariatsky Church, the Mariatsky Church,
0: Church, St. Mary's Church, yes.
1: And it is a representation, a commemoration of a a trumpeter who was sounding the alarm against the Tatars' invasion, and we're talking here medieval history 1241, I think. Um, And he gets shot with by an arrow yeah uh, struck struck, struck, in,
0: struck in the throat the story goes yes. right
1: and i have as a historian, I became very suspicious about this as something that uh has been going on since twelve forty one more or less, and I was wondering if you had any knowledge about when the hegnall was uh uh in, invented or was it really a whole medieval uh, holdover do you know
0: I don't know. Sorry, that's okay. I, I think he really- can't
1: help you there. I
0: agree. It's an interesting question. I I think it does occur through the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I know someone who's working on the Free City of Krakow. It would be interesting to ask. Uh, he's doing a PhD student doing that. It would be interesting to ask if he knows that it's going. On. Uh, you know, maybe with a little sleuthing, we could figure it out. But it's not something I I know immediately. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I I
1: do think that with sleuth, it would be a, I think it would be at the very least a great uh, article for someone to work at, work on at some time. And it just goes to show there are things out there uh, for peop- uh, people who are aspiring to do history. And there's plenty out there to, of material to do interesting questions ask pursue interesting questions with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I mean I I've been in correspondence with a young. Uh, is from New York, uh, who uh, is interested in sort of political violence in Krakow at the turn of the century. And I clued him into a story that I found in the press of of, uh, someone who was assassinated right next to St. Mary's Cathedral in broad daylight. And he went and did research on this recently and has written some brilliant stuff. So it's, uh, you're right, there's plenty, plenty to be done, plenty, plenty for us to to figure out and, and great stories still to be told. This was one that Wasn't so much part of my narrative, so I didn't include it. But it ended up. I think you mentioned it.
1: I think you do mention that there was an assassination. Yes. Don't go into detail. And I was actually wondering, I was if I was going to hear more about that. Uh, I mean, again, your narrative works fine without going into detail. But I was. It certainly perked my interest. uh, It's a a crazy. It's a crazy story.
0: Uh, I mean, that this that this guy. Well, basically that the press sort of vacillated back and forth on whether or not it was ethical that this, this man had been assassinated. Was Which he man spy? was it? Who was it? Was Who? he a spy or not? Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, it was called the Rybatsky murder, I think, and I don't remember if Rybatsky was the murderer or the... I don't have that uh, sort of fresh in my uh, recall right now, but... That's a very interesting case, and I can point you to the uh, young historian from New York who's working on this, Zach Mazur, I think is his, is his name. Maybe he's, we'll have him uh,
1: interview him in a, a couple of years' time uh, down the yeah, road here. That would be would a be delight great. to learn more about it, and I don't want to take you out of your story. I, uh, but it, it, it does stand out, because I mean, the big assassination in Galician history is the uh, the assassination of um, uh, the the vice, yeah, Viceroy Pototski, and yeah. mm-hmm. and to a certain extent, as I think you've talked about in other places, uh, the uh, assassination of Empress Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, and Larry,
0: Larry Wolf wrote a brilliant about that in the American Historical Review. Um, really wonderful about that, and in a way, in a way, Larry, Larry has done the shoreskin story for us in that article. Mm-hmm. And I think also in his in his book, his award-winning book on, on Galicia. Uh, so, in that article, Larry writes about Empress Elizabeth's assassination and the way that it was covered in the newspaper Chas, which mm-hmm. is uh, very conservative. The one that was that was uh, supported by the Steinshick. Uh, faction. I, on the other hand, by I'm- the way,
1: why don't you talk yeah. a bit about the Stanchiks? Just for our, you know, there are plenty of people out here who may not have ever heard of them. I mean, Stan, uh, uh, you know, the history of course, Stanchik is the um, legendary court court jester, court jester mm-hmm. who always told the truth. Uh, and uh, to talk about the you know the, the movement, where it fits in into in Polish political thought. Well, just in its in
0: its simplest contours, and that's all I really feel qualified to talk about. Uh, this is part of the way that Polish nationalists shift in the nineteenth century. How how to approach the state? What attitude to have toward the state? And in Krakow, you have a conservative school of historians, and also these uh, editors associated with Chas, this this uh, conservative newspaper. Who realized rather early, for uh, vis-à-vis the poles and other partitions, that perhaps cooperation and being loyal is the best move, rather than the the uh, stereotypical Polish response, which is a kind of insurgency and and uh, r- revolt. Uh, that's also, of course, a, uh, an invented tradition. But but in 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 the case of the Steinschicks, there's a deliberate decision to uh, be loyal to the Habsburg state and to work from within you know, education um, promoting uh, society in Warsaw this is associated with the positivists those who take the, the name from uh, Comte uh, Auguste Comte and, and uh, the idea of small scale work so rather than because you know Several times in the 19th century, efforts at insurrection were, were partially put down. And the lesson that was learned from this is rather than trying to fight uh, the partitioning powers, perhaps we should quote until uh, we can sort of improve society from within and maybe our, our options will be better later on.
1: If I may add one thing, the, you know, that is also associated with them is a notion of the strong state, that the anti state rhetoric of the szlachta, the Polish nobility, mm-hmm. the notion that you know we're more important, that uh, that our ability to make decisions is more important than a strong state, was something they were also highly critical of, which is why they liked one of their justifications for supporting the Habsburgs was you know here is a strong state, uh, and we, you know that we need the authority of a strong state to move forward. Yeah, and it's really interesting to read Choss uh, in comparison
0: to the kinds of papers that I that I read uh, much more of. Uh, when there was an incidence of police brutality on the Rynek, the main uh, square, market square in Krakow, the uh, popular illustrated press took the side of the people. So the kinds of papers I was reading took the side of the people, and Choss invariably... Uh, uh, took the side of the state and um, sort of defended the status quo, and so I saw this in in several instances. And look, I use editorials from Chas to represent you know, alternative attitudes toward some of the things that are going on in the modernization and urbanization of Krakow. So, and this is a period when you have dramatic change in just in just fifteen years, uh, uh, running water. Electric streetcars, uh, the cinema, sports teams, um, popular illustrated newspapers. Uh, people buy meat from Argentina that uh, comes on refrigerated ships and uh, to Trieste, and then up on the, the train all the way to Krakow. Uh, this this is a, a moment where attitudes and clothing styles change, where where. Thousands of people are, are are pouring into an overcrowded city and and uh, trying to make their way in a new environment and a, sort of a new way of, of understanding the world and and Chas uh, is uh, very suspicious of this. They don't want Krakow to become Greater Metropolitan Krakow. They don't. They, they're against um, the rapid modernization of the city and uh, they oppose the city mayor, Julius Leos, efforts to, uh, to create uh, greater Krakow. Although I think
1: Leo he, starts he, out as a Stanchik, doesn't that, he?
0: That's exactly what I was going to say. He was one of these conservatives, and, and he, he sort of sees the writing on the wall before many of his contemporaries, and, and he is a vice president. Krakow had a, a president and a vice president as their municipal leaders, so what we might call a mayor and a, <coughs> a vice mayor. And, or deputy mayor, excuse me, and, and, uh, Leo is the deputy mayor as a a conservative, as a stunt And then when he, uh, can tell that universal suffrage, male suffrage, of course, is going to pass in the Habsburg empire and sort of sensing this new change in perspective, he switches parties and becomes a, a liberal Democrat and becomes the city mayor and, um, He's still you know, conservative in some, in some of his perspectives, but he's definitely forward-thinking. And, and like many of the mayors in, in other Habsburg cities, including um, Vienna and Budapest, he, he, he recognizes the need to appeal to the petty bourgeois uh, citizens and not, and not just uh, to the, the financial or, or other elite.
1: Leo, was he a plebeian? Of back, plebeian background. I mean, I, 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 I see him as the way you describe him as someone who probably had some um, similarities in perspective with uh, another stanchic, um Bobzinski, Mikhail Bobzinski, who becomes the uh, viceroy of Galicia and also is a modernizer in a way and moves to include the, pe- the peasant party, for example, in the Polish club.
0: Uh, you know, I've read Leo's bi- biography, and I, I don't know that I would say that. <clears throat> well, I mean, it it really is fascinating that, I, and this is a, a little factoid I note in the book that of the six mayors of Krakow in the period from 1866 to the to the Great War, only one of them has a sort of s- prototypical, stereotypical Polish last name. Um. Uh, many of them have uh, sort of Czech or German-sounding last names, or even a Ukrainian-sounding last name, uh, and that I think that that says something about the one, the fact that national and ethnic identities are not one-to-one correspondences, and and two that that this is the way cities long function in this part of the world. Uh, in the case of Leo, if memory serves me correctly, his father came to uh, Galicia to be a manager in the salt mines at Violichka, uh from, uh, I think, Moravia. And so his background, as best I know, is, is uh, sort of Czech Moravian. Um, but of course, by the turn of the century, he feels himself very much to be a you know a Pol- Polish patriot uh, but also a Habsburg and I think you know people had multiple identities and one of the things I'm trying to do in in this book is to uh, challenge uh, a storyline that 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 sees the national as being successful because people you know people knew uh, people didn't know that there was going to be a Polish state, uh, and the outcome of World War I, which resulted in the creation of a a Polish state uh, after 123 years of of one not existing, uh, has meant that historians of the 19th century have tended to tell a teleological story, one that, that sort of gets us to Polish, uh, a, a sort of a Polish city or a Polish state, and I just reading these papers, I was convinced that that, that really wasn't the way many people were seeing things. Of course, there were Polish patriots who were ha- hopeful that there would uh, be a Polish state. Of course, there were Polish nationalists who were saying, you know, don't buy German products, or, or um, you know, fomenting these these uh, new national ideas. Yes, the sorts of things that Brian Porter shoots has written about in his his first book, but that's just not that's not a major storyline in in Krakow.
1: I think that's yeah. A, it's not a storyline in Krakow. I'm more so in in Lemberg than it is in Krakow. But certainly, and even even if as someone who didn't even without reading your book, I that's something that stands out from what I do know uh and reading your book it only verifies that more that it's that's uh and it really is this issue getting back to what you were describing before uh and you know, sort of you what you so wonderfully encapsulate in your title becoming metropolitan i mean you've talked about the issue and when you said greater crackle i think we should say this means uh, as is happening all over the world that's right the uh the creation of larger city conglomerations of neighboring areas
0: yeah i mean urban urban uh governance just doesn't work very well when you have uh, a tax levied every time you cross some sort of um you know putative barrier between a, this little suburb and that little suburb and when you don't have a unified metropolitan police force so this this is uh, a story that's pioneered as in much of urban history in, in London, right, with the creation of metropolitan government, metropolitan policing in London. And, uh, and of course, the, the the best for Krakow, but not the only, is the creation of Gross Wien in, in Vienna, Greater Vienna, where the incorporation of this, these uh, surrounding districts is achieved in uh, 1891, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it was very interesting to go to the archives and read the the studies that were done by these municipal authorities, and they were they were very well informed as to how this process was taking place in many many European cities, uh, and the, of course, again, their closest model was was Vienna, but but they were attuned to new ideas in urban theory uh, from from the English, of course, the whole idea of a garden city. Mm-hmm. um this this was uh very interesting to to polls uh to well, not just polls I sh- i'm so sorry that sort of undermines my argument to Krakowians right uh and 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 they thought that hey perhaps the fact that we don't have much industry here could uh, be an advantage we could have uh, a garden city model where we have green space and, and uh neighborhoods with with villas single sort of single family or, or duplex type uh homes and we can do urban planning that, that in some respects skips some of the nastiness of nineteenth century uh, industrialization. I should say, just for viewers, uh, I'm sorry, listeners who, who d- don't know, uh, Krakow was not an industrial city in large because of the partitions. It was the fact that it, that it was cut off from its hinterland and because it was occupied by the, the Habsburgs in the middle of the 19th century. And so in a period when other cities are tearing down their city walls, I mean, this is quite famous in, in Vienna, the creation of the uh in order to promote urban growth and development. In Krakow, fortifications are actually being erected because this was a garrison town. Krakow was at the intersection of the three partitions, and the Habsburgs wanted to have a military uh, force there. Uh, and so this really put a break on on commercial development. I have some great little anecdotes in, the, in there where you know this this village mayor says, uh, you know, that some Moravian came here last fall wanting to build a factory, and I told him, hey, you're welcome to build a factory, but this is the wall zone, and if the Habsburgs tell you that it has to be torn down, I can't do anything about it. So it was a real break on business, and and the process of creating greater Krakow in the beginning of the 20th century, the period that I'm writing about, was explicitly an effort to put the fortifications further out from the city, to maximize economic opportunities in this area, including the creation of a canal that uh, would connect, believe it or not, the Vistula with with the Danube and then eventually with the Black Sea.
1: Interestingly, you know the city walls in uh, Lemberg, Lviv, were actually torn down in, 19- in seventeen seventy-seven.
0: Wow, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, uh, it's part of the Austrian efforts to, you know, sort of demonstrate mastery. And so, in the early nineteenth um, century, you know, they expand uh, across um, the Poltava the River. The the, the basically, which you can't mm-hmm. see anywhere if you go to. Right, uh, right. If you it's go pretty, to London, much, pretty uh,
0: much underground
1: uh, again, which was uh, you know considered an engineering feat at the time, although there are some Ukrainian um, uh, environmentalists who want to see the pole full live. Although the descriptions uh, of what it, what the river was like in the mid nineteenth century don't make me want to necessarily uh,
0: say
1: <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty smelly, and of course sewage. Was uh, was flowing there, and I don't know if they changed that when they covered it up. I don't know, um, but that's uh, again that's another city's. Uh, well, but no sewage,
0: sewage ends up being a, an important story here in in Krakow as well. I write about the the, the huge benefit of running water, how few people had uh, indoor plumbing and, and could take baths at home, uh, and also how the the night carters would still have to sort of take the foul effluvia out of out of the city by cart and dump it into in pits outside of the city and also how the sewage would go straight into the Vistula so that so that uh, people in the, some of those neighboring communities across the river uh, had a very different picture of Krakow than the Krakowians might have had themselves about its own sort of beauty if it was uh, belching this uh, foul effluvia into into the river Uh, but this this is all I think part of an enlightenment attitude to toward uh, sort of urban urban living this this idea that we decry filth but it's in the hopes of overcoming it Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the earliest kinds of articles that I focused on in my research was where I saw the trope grading and it was usually a, a term that was negatively used uh, because people were afraid of becoming a big city. They were afraid of of moral and literal filth, uh, particularly the moral filth. The idea that that you know women were sexually uh, susceptible in the big city, and that people's morals went down when they lived in big cities. This is you know a very common European, uh, not sure just European, but in this time, uh, a very common trope. But what I argue in in the book is that people still don't ultimately abandon hope that something can be done about it. They complain in large part because they still believe in modern European civilization. They still believe that, that uh, good governance can succeed and that people... I'm uh, sorry about the telephone. People can uh, can still have a, a cleaner and, and, and better place to live. Go ahead, Hugo. I'm not, Why don't we just. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, I was going to say we could put it on pause for a second. But um, the, you know, you get to this point, though, about interurban matrix. Yeah. And about civilization and both those together. I mean, and this gets to what you said they'd really researched what was going on in other uh, other cities, whether it was Paris or London. I would just. Uh, you know, Forgive the provincial interest. Does New York come into that as well? Absolutely.
0: Uh, yeah, I, there's a great uh, couple of stories in there that I remember. One in which uh, a young uh, newlywed couple from Krakow goes to New York and and writes, uh, writes back a, a full-page article about their experience being in this soaring modern metropolis with, with skyscrapers and ferries and airplanes and, and uh, streetcars and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I became convinced as, as I read these newspapers that, that there's something very interesting going on. And it's what we today call globalization. Uh, at the time, I think because European civilization had such power and prominence, there was an awareness that sort of Anglican or European civilization was, was the dominant, dominant paradigm. And, uh, One of the things I'm trying to do in this book is to point out that even if people of the day may not have been so aware of what was going on in in a little place like Krakow, it doesn't mean that Krakowians weren't connected to this sort of modern, urban, civilized world. Uh, They were um, dancing the same dance steps that were, were, you know, being danced in in Boston or, or... uh, London or Paris, and they were listening to some of the same things and watching the same uh, cinema. They were uh, reading about um, Jack the Ripper-type attacks that occurred in New York or London or Berlin or, or even in Little Krakow. They were they were part of this new global urban civilization.
1: And they're making comparisons, too, I mean, aren't they? I mean, yeah, and people... Ma-
0: they increasingly are dressing in similar ways. I, I mean, I love the image on the the cover of the book where you see these petty uh, bourgeois uh, couple out for a stroll, and and they could they could be anywhere. The background gives it away as Krakow, but the but the foreground it it could be in any city sort of setting, and and I think that, that this says something about this uh, sort of twentieth century modernity as it as it spreads. Spreads across across the globe, and um,
1: if I may, if I yeah, may, please. just for a second, uh, yeah, yeah. for for our, for our listeners who don't have the uh, capacity to have the book in front of them, like, of course, you can go to Amazon and pull up the picture. But uh, there's also a, a little flower girl who, of course, is impoverished, but also wearing clothing that you know she could easily have been wearing in Berlin or London. Uh, Though in the background, not only do you have the Siknica which is the sort center of the market square, Mm -hmm. uh, once a a clothing market, but you also have a peasant family in the background. That's right, they're wearing the uh,
0: Krakowian style.
1: Yes, and then some uh, men looking like they're wearing some kind of Polish-styled military uniforms, but then, of course, that would be Austrian, but... I think they're wearing them as uh, poles. Yes, very
0: much so. And there's, a, there's an elderly Jew walking with him. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I have an article coming out in Urban History this year in which I analyze this uh, this picture, uh, and I talk about the mythic vision of Krakow. Um, and so one of them is the Krakow is the Polish Athens or Polish Mecca, in which uh, it's a national. A shrine, a place where people come to worship the nation and sort of revere its uh, monuments, its historical monuments and its its meaning uh, in terms of national identity. The other I call the Little Vienna on the Vistula, which was a term that was used at the time sort of a recognition that Krakow was very much a Habsburg city and was part of the, the, uh, the Habsburg Empire and uh, people uh, participated in customs and attitudes of the metropole. I mean, they had their Great theater when when I lived in Krakow. This is a little side note. I'll get back to this picture. Uh, in 2001, my wife and I uh, went to the various opera houses in Prague and Vienna and Budapest, Lviv. Um, and of course, they're very similar. This is part of a similar culture, the cafe culture that's still present in Lviv and, and not as developed in other uh, sort of East Ukrainian cities. Is is also part of this. Connection to uh, this Habsburg identity, and in this picture on the on the cover, you see the gendarme and the the soldier wearing their Habsburg uh, uniforms. Uh, So the so the background certainly defies the myth of the Polish Athens with its historical monuments with people. Wearing their clothing that gives them away, uh, sort of their identity, and you'll note that they are kind of keeping to themselves. The poles, I mean, the Polish uh, nobility are all talking to each other. The Jews by himself. the peasants are by themselves, mm-hmm. the the officers are by themselves. But it's a foreground where you have uh, the urban story going on. You have a, an automobile, you have tram-, yes. tram lines, and you have a barefoot boy. In addition to the barrel, who's selling flowers, a barefoot boy who's peddling the very kinds of newspapers that I read in my. In my research for for, for this book in a study of a popular illustrated press and, in, and this petty bourgeois couple out for a stroll and so that 's why I have the gerund in the title it 's becoming metropolitan. this is a process in which uh, a city that and, and cities always have multiple meanings and multiple identities. but I think one of the stories that that hadn 't been told and was certainly worth being told was the one that, that I try to tell in this book, which is uh, this process of Urbanization and modernization and being collect, connected to a, a larger uh, European or even global ur- urban culture.
1: The yeah, I, that's what is, I guess the thing that keeps on coming back to me as you talk about this is the paradox that Krakow it's is in some ways. More metropolitan and becoming metropolitan more quickly than its much larger capital, Lemberg. The Boulevard Press comes later. Uh, to, well, paradoxically, the, the, the town well, that's known Lember- as, that's known as historically being the more democratic as opposed to conservative. Uh, and, and the, the Boulevard Press comes later. Uh, the fact that in, in some sense, I think that one wants to be careful about how much one emphasizes the homogeneity, because as you mentioned, there are a lot of different groups living in Krakow, but uh, the extent, the, the fact that it was so clearly Polish-dominated in some ways made it easier for it to be Habsburg than... Uh, in Lemberg at this time, or, uh, Lviv, 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 rather, uh, where there is a competition increasing about uh, a for, for the votes of the working class, and also between of uh, the Poles and the Ukrainians.
0: I agree with you. Uh, I think I think that it, to, to some extent. Krakow is less uh, nationally volatile, precisely because it's so clear that there are just two major stakeholders, the Poles and the Jews, and the uh, Krakowian Jews are pretty well represented in politics in Krakow. And I think think the fact that uh, Leboeuf-Lemberg has a a triangular uh, relationship between Poles uh, Ukrainians and, uh, and uh, Jews makes the dy- dynamic there much more complex. I, I would say that, of course, Lemberg is still more of a big city than Krakow. Uh, um, I'm sure. And it does actually have uh, popular illustrated newspapers slightly before uh, Krakow. Viek Nowe is there. Um, Boulevard newspaper, and ba- basically the story of the Boulevard Press in Austria is very directly traced to the elimination of the stamp tax, and so uh, 1901, uh, the, or 1900, I think it's 1900, the Kronenseitung is uh, first published in Vienna on January 1st, I mean, mm-hmm. the first day where, where uh, this stamp tax is gone, and you're allowed to Sort of sell papers without having them stamped ahead of time. The cost can go down, and you can reach a bourbon market. And then a year later, uh, Viek Nowe* or *The New Century* uh, debuts in in Lemberg. Hmm.
1: I miss, I've missed that yeah, entirely because I, I, mean, and I then, know and you have the *Gazeta Porani, Porani and *Wyczarne* uh, a few years later.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's well, what so, I was
1: thinking of as the parallel to the ones you're talking oh, about. Okay, well, yeah.
0: So and then and then. Kuryak Krakowski uh, starts in 02 to sort of be a local competitor to Vyak which is being sold in Krakow from, from Lundberg. Okay. I would say that you're still right that the Illustrated Press takes off. Uh, it does much better, I think, in, in Krakow. Now, mm-hmm. Lofshuski, my primary course, and then Illustrowany Kuryasogen, the IKATS, as the Poles call it, or, or IKC as its. Uh, most frequently seen in, in, in my book. They go on, it goes on to be the sort of popular illustrated paper, even in the period, and sort of a huge press empire um, is centered in Krakow instead of in Warsaw because of the legacy of this, of this, uh, the popular illustrated press in Krakow. So it, it definitely is most successful there. And, and again, I agree with you. I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that you don't, you don't have as much political radicalism in Krakow because things are more uh, stable in terms of uh, the, the politics. And Lemberg is, above all, a Habsburg city, but there is still a lot of, uh, sort of national competition. That's, that's my, that's my uh, take on it.
1: Yeah, and of course the Ukrainians don't even manage to get a a popular newspaper out, uh, which gets to a point that uh, I think uh, is key here to the more general story. When we we talk about nationalism and we talk about, you know, you mentioned Benedict Benedict Anderson's talk of uh, print capitalism, and yet the newspapers in Galicia, until you get this Boulevard Press in Krakow, are not really money makers. It's hard to talk about it as capitalism. Mm. I mean, that's one of the most mm. lines. Yeah. Well, and and going back, to Dan,
0: person, uh, brilliant, brilliant work, of course, pathbreaking and, and still very important. But when you think about it, what's the more plausible first person plural? Is it really the nation, or is it the the urban community where, you know, the readers are in common. I mean, it's. I just think it's so much easier to imagine a community in which you can walk the same space, you know, enter the same buildings and, and walk the same streets and cheer for the same sports teams. Uh, and so as I, as I did this work, I, I felt like, you know, it's... Um, Undercutting that theory, but perhaps showing ways that it could be more plausible. I mean, ultimately, self-identification is very complex, and, and people uh, have multiple identities and multiple ways of of identifying with, with with different groups. But it just it just felt to me that the urban had had really been overlooked, and that's that's why I wanted to stress both sort of local urban identity, and then also you mentioned my term the interurban. Matrix: the sense of belonging to urban civilization, in the sense that that people could read about sensational things that happen in other big cities and, and uh, learn from that, or try to apply that in their own experience of sipping coffee or riding the tram uh, here, here in their own in their own cities at home.
1: I think one of the things about that you actually maybe reviving is a side of Anderson that I think was always highly original and one of my favorite parts of the book, uh, but is about. It, Urban life, because his talk about the novel, uh, and, the, uh, and he uses an example of a uh, Philippine novel, mm-hmm. uh, where you have multiple characters in the same environment who never meet each other, mm-hmm. and the, the city is, in a sense, is the original national metaphor. I mean, and uh, it's perhaps not a coincidence that the term we use today to speak about membership in a nation. Uh, particularly, at least a politically defined one, is citizen. Yeah. Uh, um, And uh, as as we don't have a separate name for it, it's an expansion of that old time concept of all, and which included all different uh, social uh, classes in a way that other parts of the society were not, or the rural area where there were strict uh, uh, distinctions.
0: Yeah, we're deeply indebted to the the sort of the Greek city-state model, I think, in in our concepts of democracy and uh, s- s- self, sort of, yeah, citizenship, right? <laughs> the concept, yeah. So you're 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 very very uh, astute to, to 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 point that out.
1: We it's been a pleasure talking to you about this book. Um, we don't have a lot of time left. But I'd like you, you know, A, is there any particular point you want to bring out that we've not yet gotten to?
0: Well, if you don't mind, uh, we didn't talk much about uh, Chapter 5, which is what led me into my current project. So I'd be really delighted to talk a little bit about Chapter 5, which uh, is Planes, Trams, and Automobiles. Uh, and it's, it's the uh, silly title that I, that I gave it. But it was, a, it was uh, a realization that people were, at first, very much afraid of electric streetcars uh, coursing down their streets, terrified of being hit, terrified of the sparks from the electricity, but that they very quickly adapted to them and and, and soon began to complain that they were too damn slow. And uh, I, I love that story. Uh, it's a story that is uh, also told in Wolfgang Schivelbusch's book about um, trains, which in English is called Railway Journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, it took a longer time, but it, it really started to fascinate me how to adapt to modern technologies. And in this case, I, I used it to talk about adapting to modern urban life. Uh, but my current work is on bicycles, automobiles, and airplanes in Poland from more or less their introduction, the mid-1880s, about 1884, 1885, to the outbreak of the Second World War. And um, the tentative title... Is uh, backwardness and rushing forward, and and trying to take on some of these issues of uh, backwardness that are associated with this region, and dreams and desires of being able to rush forward, and, and I just have just decided, uh, pun intended, to sort of seat those dreams in, in bicycles, airplanes, and and automobiles because this is sort of the way that people. I mean, what better way to rush forward than than in the seat of a, of a fast machine? So I'm looking at at uh, designers of these. Uh, machines or people who try to invent things, or automobiles, people who belong to cycling clubs, automobile clubs. So that way, the the idea of being modern clearly is something that I'm fascinated with. And and so becoming metropolitan now is shifting over to looking at how how people uh, approach these new machines and their own feelings about being backward. And their desires to rush to the full, to, to, to to the to the into the future.
1: Do you see a difference in the partitions relating to you know membership in those yes. clubs?
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you know, uh, Hugo, you know very well that that those of us who do Polish history, it's it's for the nineteenth century in particular. We we tend the clustering, those who do Gion partition, those who do Galicia, and there aren't many of us who do Prussia. Uh, and um, so uh, it's been very, very interesting for me to shift from spending most of my time doing research in Krakow to being in Warsaw and to uh, trying to make it over to the Prussian partition for a little bit of the time reading stuff from nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, uh, certainly, the I would say the opportunities were best in Galicia for people who wanted to be involved in uh, automobile clubs, aviation clubs. There was a really important aviation club in Lundberg, uh, Aviata, that mm-hmm. was um, very successful and, and Polish pilots were able to fly in the, in the uh, Habsburg Air Force um, and participate in international competitions. I mean, I just think that the the greater freedoms enjoyed there gave uh, Poles better opportunities in Galicia than in the other two
1: partitions.
0: Um,
1: if I recall correctly, yeah, uh, part of the there's a famous um, memorial commemorative cemetery to the Polish fighters uh, in uh, in the 1918-19 war over western or eastern Galicia uh, that's now been supplemented with a parallel Ukrainian uh, uh, cemetery. Uh, but that uh, there, are, in, there in, is in, a in the reason I'm mentioning this, this is in Lviv mm-hmm. in the uh, uh, uh cemetery. But what I mention it is because there's a, I think there's a mon- part of it is a monument to pilots, specifically who fought and lost their lives. Uh, just like I mentioned that there. Um, before I let you go, uh, I do, you know, you've told us about your next projects, which sounds wonderful and fascinating. Uh, but could you give us some thoughts about where you think uh, and what you think a historian or um, wannabe historian uh, would Want to explore and what they need, what tools you feel are most important uh, to acquire along the way.
0: Well, the great thing about this uh, interview is that the internet is is sort of international and global, so that I'm not only speaking to the American audiences to which I typically uh, speak. In our case, in America, it's uh, vital. Or I guess even in the Anglophone world, it's vital that we learn the languages. I mean, that's the biggest hindrance for bright young students who come to my office and tell me how much they want to study European history. Uh, it's the lack of of ability that prevents them from being able to to bring some of their original and important insights and questions to bear. So. Uh I, I've listened to, to some of your other um, podcasts. I particularly enjoyed the one with Timothy Snyder. And, and I recall he made a similar point that, that aspiring historians of this region need to learn uh, perhaps the, I, I think he said, the language of the, the occupying powers in the area, at least one of them, so Russian or German, uh, and then uh, a language of, of one, at least one of the groups there. And uh, so I feel very fortunate that I learned Polish living in the country and I went back and did and studied it more at a uh, university and I have tried to pick up some Czech and some German and studied some French. Uh, I'm not very confident in any of those other languages, but at least I have Polish down uh, well enough, as Jay Winter has said, to get the jokes. And, uh, <laughs> he He talked about the... Cultural history requiring someone who knows a language well enough to to get the jokes, and that it's very hard to master multiple languages sufficiently to to get the jokes. And so, one of his arguments is that we also need to be thinking about um, collaborative history, ways that we can work with uh, our colleagues uh, to do comparative uh, history. And that was a very formative moment for me in graduate school when, when he came and spoke about. Uh, cultural mm-hmm. history. As our listeners probably know, Jay Winter is most famous for his terrific scholarship about the First World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think language ability and uh, getting over there. You have to spend time in in whatever region it is you want to study. You need to live, live in the area for a while and uh, have a sense for the contemporary culture and layout, at least, uh, in order to ask, I think, Good historical questions, but one of the real benefits of being, uh, in my case, an outsider, someone who, as I always joke with the Poles when they ask me, "Well, how did you come up doing this?" You know, I always say, "Well, unfortunately, I have no Polish heritage. Um, that's not my. That's not my background." But I'm also asking different questions and uh, trying to uh, look at Polish history in, in a different way. Uh, maybe, maybe it's because I'm uh, an American that I that I. I, I don't uh, always want to focus on the same sad stories sure. uh, that are, are vitally important. And I, of course, teach them in my classes, but I'm trying to ask uh, different questions, questions perhaps that help me understand myself about just living in this modern world, but, it, but, but, in, but in a place like uh, Poland where I think they're rich and, 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 and even more interesting.
1: Well, thank you very much. It has been a pleasure talking to you, uh, Nathan, about your book, Becoming Metropolitan. And I look forward to seeing more work from you in the future. Uh, Have a wonderful day. Thanks kindly. This has been a discussion with Nathaniel Wood about his book, Becoming Metropolitan. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, with New Books in Eastern European Studies, and we'll be back next week